All right, as we look at the passage today, um, we are going through emotionally healthy spirituality. And the first session is a compilation of chapters one through three. This one will be on chapter four, which is about authenticity, having an authentic spirituality. And I think about this sermon series, and we don't want to just do a book review. We don't want to just come up and kind of go through the chapter outlines like a lecture. We want to highlight different aspects of the book that will maybe most benefit or most speak to our congregation. And for my sermons, I want to anchor it into a text of scripture. And so, so that's kind of our thought process. But again, we want to invite you to do this journey with us. It's not just a Sunday series. In our small groups, we're going through a workbook that helps us process the material that uh, is, in the, is in the book. And then we also have a day-by-day devotional, which we did a little bit last week. We just sat back for 10 minutes and was silent before the Lord and spent time listening to him and being with him. And that's really kind of the anchor of the series is how do we grow in both our spiritual health and our, our emotional health? And how do these two things come together? All right, the first question the first thought I have for you is on, on the slide. I don't think my, my thing is working. Let me try once. No, let me try again. Okay, back to renew uh, year one. So, and two and three. Okay, next slide. Mark, no? We have no slides? Okay, we'll get them up though, right? Do you guys need anything from me? Because the slides are really important this, this week. Password? Okay, sorry guys. <laughs> About feeling out of their gut. So what is the heart? If it's not just you know our, our ticker, if it's not our emotions, the Bible actually has a really amazing definition for heart. And it's the reality of who we are, right? Next slide. It's our true self. Thanks, Mark, and everyone in the back. Um, And out of our true selves comes everything else that we do. So it's actually a really profound concept. It's the entirety of our soul. It's the entirety of our person, our best and our worst. So in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows out of it. Every action, every word, every thought, every intention, every motivation comes out of your being, your heart the reality of who you are. And when we think about being authentic, but thinking about it in terms of the reality of who we are, I think there's a little bit of a disconnect. Because when we think about what what it's like to be authentic, we're like, oh, I vomited on Facebook recently. I'm super authentic, right? Or someone asked me about my week, and I told them what I'm struggling with. Or I put my heart on my sleeve. But this is something a little bit deeper. The heart is, is deeper than just vomiting on Facebook because it's actually a hard work and difficult to know our entire self, to have put our arms around all of who we are. Part of it is because we have a false self that we present to other people. And of course, Facebook and social media exacerbates this, right? Whenever Nina is looking at a celebrity couple talking about how cute they are and how much they love each other, I just laugh at her. I laugh so hard. I think it's so funny because it's not real. It's only one slice of their relationship. He's not going to 
he's not going to do a selfie of him cussing out his wife, right? He's not going to do an Insta story of him yelling at his child. No one does that. You, you've never done an Insta story of you crying in fetal position in the corner of your room. It's the best parts of who you are. It's how you present yourself. And so there's a disconnect in our false self between who we actually are and how we present ourselves to others. And we all, if you're... If you're socially apt, it's just part of it, right? It's just part of being socially apt. That when I meet you, I don't just tell you like the absolute worst parts of my week. But it's also true that you don't get to see all of me. Now, the false self becomes even more dangerous when there's a separation between not only who we are and other people, but who we are and our relationship with the Lord. And that's what it's talking about in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. He's talking about the Pharisees. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And I wonder if we've done that. We've all been there, right? Where we've, we've all sang the same songs this Sunday, but our hearts are in very different spaces. We can all listen to a sermon, but some of our hearts are open and others of our hearts are calloused and removed. So we can reside in the same space, listen to the same things, sing similar words, but our hearts can be close or far away. It can be, um, we can be fake or authentic, and we don't really know. And then the last part, and maybe the most profound statement about the heart, is that it's our hidden, that there's a hidden self, what you don't know about who you are. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Who can understand their own heart? Who can understand the entirety of who they are? That there's actually a self-deception. There's a self-separation between who we are and who we think of ourselves as. Isn't that profound? And yet there's moments, isn't there? where you think something or say something or do something and you say, I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I said that or thought that. You don't know because there's aspects of you that you are still discovering or aspects of you that you've slid under the rug and are repressing. There's aspects of ourselves that are hidden. And I would say Jeremiah is suggesting that there's large parts of who we are that go undiscovered or repressed or ignored. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes you're looking across the room like, oh yeah, that person's totally unself-aware. That's where we get that idea, right? That their, their self-awareness is so low that they have so much of who they are that they haven't discovered. And again, Jeremiah is saying that of each of us. Now, as we look at this book, chapter four intros with a lot of um, really fascinating and profound quotes. Can I get the next slide? Augustine in Confession says, How can we draw close to God when we are far from our own self? That there's a connection between knowing ourselves and knowing God. He prays, Grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know you. John Calvin breaks it down even more. He says, our wisdom consists entirely of two parts, the knowledge of self, of, sorry, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy 
to determine which of, of the who perceives and gives birth to the other. Which of the one perceives and gives birth to the other. Right? Our knowledge of self and knowledge of God are interconnected. And, and that's why we're going through this book. Peak Scazzaro, right on the cover, says it's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. So some of us, um, maybe all of us, grow up at churches that we have such a value for spiritual maturity. But it's always kind of looking up and out. It's getting as much Bible verses memorized as you can, going through the Bible in a year, praying as hard as you can. Those are all really important com components to spiritual health. But if we don't look inward and dive deep, if we lack a knowledge of self, our knowledge of God hits a wall. It can become two inch deep. We can just be a person who knows how to recite verses, but don't know how it applies to our own souls. And so that's why emotional health and spiritual health, they come together. Have you seen people just kind of be really spiritual, but, and maybe yourself. I mean, there's so many moments in my life where I look back, I'm like, I've done all of these spiritual things, but am I truly different? I've done all of these spiritual things, but will my wife say that I'm a better person this year than last year? That's a, you're asking the same question, but sometimes we, we don't hold that question in a valuable way. What I love about John chapter 4, besides it's one of my life messages, like this, this message has shaped me in my ministry, is that it speaks so directly to these concerns of Jesus wanting to have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation with the Samaritan woman. And in extension, he's having a conversation with each of us. He's having a conversation with you this morning. All right, uh, John chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and, and pull it out. Uh, next slide. He had to go to, through Samaria, so he came to a town in, Syrah, or in Samaria called Sychar, Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, he said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who is it that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. We're going to pause there. And talk a little bit about the historical context. There, there's a lot here. Samaritans were like um, muggles in Harry Potter, right? They're half-breeds. They're half-Jewish and half-Gentile. And the Jews hated them. They hated them more than Gentiles, non-Jews, because they would uh, dilute and be synchronistic about the Jewish faith and also these heathen religions, it's maybe similar to how we view the Mormons, right? They say they're Christians, but they actually have a totally different theology. They, there's one God to this planet, but there's many, many gods of many, many planets. So when they say they're Christian, for me, I'm like, oh, you're, you're a total misrepresentation of my faith. I wish you would say that you're not Christian and you're another religion. 
And so the Jews had this visceral reaction against the Samaritans because they had these claims of Judaism, but it was completely distorted. And so Jews would walk around Samaria. If they're going from Judea to Galilee or Galilee to Judea, they would take dozens or maybe a hundred miles to loop around Samaria to go from one place to another. No Jew would go into Samaria. So he was breaking cultural barriers. And then he was breaking gender barriers. A good Jew would never talk to a woman in public. If, you, if you're a good Jew and you speak to a woman in public, you're basically saying, I'm sleeping with her. I have total disregard for my wife. Me and her, we're sleeping together. That's what you were saying publicly if you were speaking to another woman. And so Jesus is doing a really radical act in sitting with this Jewish woman and having conversation with her. And that's her first response. She's shocked. And lastly, we know this woman was ostracized by her own community. That she went out to draw water at noon, the hardest, hottest part of the day. No one does that. The women would go to the well at dusk or dawn. And usually at dusk, a lot of women would gather, and it was like going to the restroom together, right? You're going to the restroom, but you're also gossiping and talking about cute guys and your family. It's, it's a social event. And so these women, so this woman going at the heat of the day, avoiding socializing with the other women in her community, spoke to her status, that she was disregarded by the other Samaritans. She was seen later on, as we look at this passage, as someone who just slept around, was loose, maybe destroyed some families. That was her reputation. But Jesus walks through cultural, gender, and even maybe like social ethic barriers uh, in order to interact with this woman. And I wonder, I think about how Jesus walks into some areas in our life that people walk around. Maybe everyone else is walking around our depression. Maybe that's our Samaria. Maybe some other people are walking around our anxiety. Maybe some people are avoiding our sin. Maybe there's aspects of our life that we are isolated and, 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 and we hide and we say we don't want anyone to talk about this or know about this. And so there's that space that we are completely alone in. But here, as he intros this passage, it says Jesus had to go to Samaria. And as we look at what Pete Scazzaro is saying, what this text is saying, is that Jesus, if you want a deep and significant relationship with him, he has to go to those areas of our life. He has to walk into some areas that we've been pushing others away from. We've been walking around ourselves that we don't want to go into. Jesus is saying, I want to go into that space with you to have heart and hard conversations. And I love how he's doing that with this woman. She's shocked by it. And I wonder if we're shocked that Jesus wants in. I wonder if he's the first person we let in or the last. I wonder if we've grown up at a religion where we have to get squeaky clean in order to walk into church, to pray, to talk to Jesus. And maybe this Jesus from the Bible is saying, I want to walk into those places in your life 
and you're surprised by it. <clears throat> you are a Jew and I am Gentile. How can you ask me for water? And he said, if you knew the gift of God who asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Next slide. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I don't, won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Can you give me the next slide? She's told, uh, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Next slide. All right, if you have pen and paper, does that work? Oh, nice. If you have pen and paper, um, go ahead and pick it up, or your notebook, if you have a notebook from our church. If you don't have a pen and paper, please, raise, please walk to the front row. Like That row has six papers and, and pens. Or maybe raise your hand, and someone will help you, OK? I want, we're going to do arts and crafts. We've been doing this for a few weeks now. I realize maybe it's because I'm ADD and an extrovert that I make you guys also be ADD with me. <laughs> um, I want you to draw this kind of as a triangle, maybe length or hot dog, whichever way you want to do. And um, living water on one side, well water on the other, and your heart uh, underneath, okay? Living water, well water, and your heart. It doesn't have to be perfect, but I will be grading everyone's papers. All right, as you do this, I'm going to talk a little bit more. So Jesus talks about well water, and he describes it to her. He says that well water will make you more thirsty. And then he defines well water to her. He says that well water is her sin. He moves from a physical metaphor into a spiritual reality, right? They have this conversation about well water, that if you drink it, you will be thirsty again. And then he says, that's the men you've had in your life, that you've moved from one man to the other. At first, they fill you. At first, you feel satisfied. But in the end, you leave more thirsty. And isn't that how all sin and idolatry looks? Right? No sin is deeply satisfying where you judge someone and you judge them hard and then you gossip about them and you feel like better than them and then you feel better for the rest of your life. No, right? That doesn't happen. You feel better for a while, but then, then the high wears out. And then you realize, man, I've hurt another person and I've done damage to my own soul. Maybe your sin is losing your anger and that feels good. It satisfies a thirst. You didn't have control or power, and now you do. Everyone's listening to you. You've, you're able to run over your opponent. But what happens? Their anger wears off, and you've separated yourself from someone else. That, that the well water satisfies for a moment, but leads to death, right? Sin satisfies for a season, but leads to death. Um, I think that's in Proverbs. 
and, um, and it creates more fractures. But Jesus describes living water. And he says, when you fill your life with living water, it will become a spring of life. It will become a spring of life. It will fill and heal your heart instead of destroy it. So let me ask you, what are the idols and sins in your life? Sins are kind of things that you can point to and be like, oh, that's done evil to me. That's listed in the Bible. Everyone, if they knew about this, they would be like, you shouldn't be doing that. But idols can take another form. Idols can be your busyness, can be um, kind of like, your, can be your beauty, right? Everyone's like, man, you're beautiful. And that's so elevated in our generation and social media in LA. We love being beautiful and it's okay to be beautiful. But is it, is it because um, you have this deep rooted sense in the Lord? Or because there's a thirst of wanting people's affections and approval, wanting people to notice you? And is that thirst generated out of, out of a fracture in your heart, out of being unnoticed when you were a kid? So I kind of break that down into three points, right? The, the well water is your sin um, and your idols. And if you're bold enough, write down your sin and idols. It will be a more functional paper. Make initials if you feel uncomfortable with the person next to you, right? Um, do your, the initials backwards, whatever you want to do. But put down some idols and sins in your life. And then, and I think we've just kind of been taught to ask for forgiveness and hope it doesn't happen again. And that hasn't worked for me very well. But I think what idols and sins are can be a GPS into our hearts. It can show us where we need Jesus, Right? So idols and sins tell us, come out of a thirst from our heart. What is this idol and sin satisfying in my soul? Why do I do this? And then what part of my soul is fractured that makes me thirst in this way? Um, I think one of my idols is, especially uh, growing up, is I really wanted friends. I really, really wanted friends. And I would kind of fold under peer pressure, do whatever it took in order to have friends in my life. And I, I, I had this idolatry for friendship. My close friends call me a friend whore, right? Because I was just like, be friends with everyone. I don't care. I'll be friends with you, right? I'll be your best friend. And I'll make all these friendship promises because I, I, that's my idol. But where, what, what's the thirst that I'm feeling? I don't want to be alone, Right? I don't, I don't want to uh, not be invited to things. I don't want to suffer from FOMO, the worst kind of illness. So, so there's this thirst um, that friendship satisfies. It gives me value, and it takes away loneliness. But where's that fracture in my heart? Fractures are from our past, from our traumas, from places in our heart that are not filled. When we have filled places, those places don't have yearnings that are constantly grasping for sin. Those places are filled. But for me, I grew up alone. I went to school every day not having a single friend, right? You guys have heard those stories. I'd walk around the playground just like wanting friends. One day my parents gave me candy and said if I just like handed out candy, people would be my friends. And I did that. I gave everyone a, a, a candy like, will you be my friend? I have Skittles. Is that creepy? It's not creepy when you're a kid. It's sad. When you're an adult, it's creepy, right? <laughs> but when you're, when you're in second grade, it's just sad. Can you be my friend? I have Skittles. And so I grew up with these deep fractures of loneliness and rejection. So it wasn't just about 
being popular. It was about a part of my soul that was empty. And the, but the hardest part of, about idolatry is that no one sees it. And it's so easy to not see it ourselves. I loved being popular. And I love it when people would tell me I'm popular. Who, who's bad? Like, why is that bad? But if I'm, if I'm conscious enough, if I'm insightful enough, I'll trace not only the worst parts of me, but maybe the things that are partly good back into my own thirsts and fractures. Now, it's hard to look at ourselves. Uh, if you want to take a minute to just try to try to hit three, try to hit those three, okay? Try to hit one sin, why you're thirsting for it, like what what is it fulfilling, and then where that thirst originated from, just so that you could come back to this. This is like a forever exercise, but I just want you to be able to pin something in for all three: a thirst, uh, an, an idol, a well water jug. Um, an idol or a, or, an, or a sin, and then a thirst that's satisfying, and then maybe the beginnings of, of why that's a part of you. Write really sloppy so, so she can't look. She can't see your paper. Okay, sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet because you called me out on my sin. Our, an- our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jew claim that the place of w- we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Woman, The woman said, I know the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. So this woman does a hard, a hard left turn in a conversation. God, Jesus reveals her heart, aspects of her heart that she probably knew but was repressing, was putting aside. And as her heart comes up, she immediately puts up a strong spiritual barrier, the strongest of all barriers, right? It's not, hey, look, the Lakers are doing well. She didn't point at the weather. She pointed at something spiritual. And if anything can keep us deceived about our hearts, it's, it's, our, it's a spiritual facade. It's not allowing Jesus in and using Jesus as an excuse. That's some of the, um, so we have the living water wanting to fill us, but so much of our spiritual life can be about putting up a barrier, which our spirituality is, can only go as deep as we allow Christ in, right? And what are some of these spiritual barriers that we can have? Uh, this is laid out in one of the earliest, earlier chapters of our book. Using God to run from God. As God reveals some of our sin, we immediately say, oh, but I've done good things too. 
or that's not an idol. I want to use my friendships to serve you. We're not willing to look deeper, right? We, we can put out a Bible verse to defend our idols. I was able to defend gambling for 10 years. You could defend any sin, practically any sin, right? I would gamble. This is like 10 years ago. So don't be afraid of tithing to our church. I will not use our tithing money. 10 years ago, maybe more, okay? Um, and uh, I, would, I, would, I would win money and then tithe the money to like my friend going on missions and be like, therefore, it's okay, right? And it's skill-based. It's skill-based, guys. It's skill-based. And I had opportunities to share Christ in the, ga- in the uh, tables because I was a regular. Everyone knew me. Um, it's like, cheers. Anyways, that's one of the best ways to read scripture um, and twist it is to justify a sin, justify an idol. Idols are the easiest, okay? Um, what are other indications that we have barriers to our, our heart? We are ignoring our emotions of anger and sadness and fear, dying to the wrong thing, denying our past impact on our present, dividing our secular and sacred components, Doing for God instead of being with God, right? We talked about that a lot last week. Spiritualizing away conflict. Blaming the other person. Uh, taking on a spiritual hat instead of, and kind of saying, oh, I should be telling you something instead of learning something from you or allowing you to even correct me. Um, we miss out on knowing ourselves when we're not able to do conflict well. Conflict is going to be the top way you get deeper in who you are. And if you're conflict avoidant, you're actually avoiding your own heart. Covering up your brokenness, weakness, and failure, living without, uh, without limits, judging other people's spiritual journeys. Right? These are ways in which we can take our spirituality and use it as a barrier against God. And yet Jesus is saying in this last passage that if you want to worship God, you have to worship him in spirit and in truth. Think about that. That this barrier, it not only takes us away from ourselves, it takes our ability to worship the Lord away. We cannot be worshipers of Jesus unless it's soul to soul, unless we're meeting him, unless we're with him. And you know, if you struggled with silence this week, because that was our task, every twice a day, as best as we could, to sit in front of the Lord in silence, the first thing you'll notice um, in terms of its difficulty, and, and what the woman noticed, is that when you sit in front of the Lord, he pierces you. His eyes pierce you. And he sees your soul. And then you see it too. And when we stop and sit in front of the Lord and we walk away, that's why we walk away. If it's hard for you to be in front of the Lord, not just do some religious acts, right? Not just cram through the Bible, but to be in his presence. And it's hard. It's because he's looking at your heart. And looking at your heart might make you uncomfortable. But the best part is that Jesus wants to go to the Samarias in your life. But he does it in gentleness and humility. 
He does it in kindness. If you kind of battle through that a little bit, if you sit there long enough, he'll quickly remind you that he already knew, that he already chose to love you, and he's already forgiven you. Don't walk away too early. Don't walk away too soon. You'll miss out on living water in the depths of you. You know, I, I pray that that would be your greatest gift from silence. That God would know you. That you would let him penetrate you with his gaze. But you would see his eyes of love. You would see his humility. You would see the cross again. And trust me, I get it. I've done my fair share of U-turns. Hey, God, okay. I'll s let me go over here and um, play some video games <laughs> instead of, hey, God, I'm here. Yeah. I know. And you know. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me. For dying for me and for bringing me into this moment. That you love and accept me. That's what he does with this woman. He just brings her in. He shows her more of who she is. But she, he doesn't just point. He holds her hand and walks in to those spaces, each and every one. And he's willing to walk into all of your Samarias. Every trauma, every pain and hurt, every your worst sin, Jesus has to go to Samaria. But when he does, you are a worshiper of spirit and in truth. You know, there's this really amazing moment here where she says, I know the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus says, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. There's so few moments that Jesus reveals himself as Messiah. Most of the time he's telling people, don't tell of that miracle because I'm going to get all these followers for the wrong reason. But here with this woman, with the Samaritan, with someone rejected by her, her society, he reveals himself. You know, God, if you let God into those places, that's where you'll see him most clearly. Did you know that? Did you know that it's in those hardest places that Jesus appears most clearly? We want to keep him on the outskirts, and that's why he's hazy. But he appears to us in our hardest places. And he appeared to this woman. And he said, I am he. In the original language, it's I am. It's a throwback to Moses, right? When, when Moses was asking God for a name, what did he say? I am who I am. And it confused him. He, everyone is looking for the name of God. Actually, in that time, there was like a mysticism to the true name of their idols. Because if you knew their true hidden secret name, you could summon their powers. And their name also gave 
the context in which their power resided. So in Israel, there's a God of the Nile. So if, you're, if you need more water, you would pray to that God. There's a God of livestock. Pharaoh was a God of birth. And so when, when God waged war against Egypt, it was against their gods. He went down the list of their top gods and he annihilated each one of them, saying, you don't have that power. I do. And that's also why God's name is so categoryless. I'm not just a God of life or prosperity or provision or reproduction or love. I'm the God of it all. I am who I am. So when we dig deep enough and find those crevices in our heart, God's saying, I'm the one who will fill that thirst and that fracture, and I cover every category. Are you scared and living in fear? I'm, the, I'm your stronghold. Are you feeling alone? I'm your friend and your lover. Are you feeling valueless? You are my son and my daughter. Are you scared of provision? I am the great provider. There's over a hundred names of God because he covers every territory of our heart. And that's what Jesus is saying. That when we remove these barriers and we go to living water, that he will fill every part of our soul. That this living water will well up into eternal life. And we see that in this woman. The disciples are confused. They want to ask her, what do you want? Why are you talking to her? You know, he's broken every law or every, not every law, but every custom. There's, they kind of know better than to talk to Jesus like that. But then we see this woman in verse 38. It says, then leaving her water jar behind, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and make their, made their way towards him. You know, I love this little picture of her leaving the water jar, leaving well water. It's really, uh, Jeremiah speaks to this. He condemns the Israelites. He says, you have left um, living water. You have left a spring of, of a, a, a well, like a spring of water for empty cisterns that can hold no water. So he's telling the Israelites, like, you left a drinking fountain. You left a river for your water jug that has no bottom. That's what it's like, right, to drink sin and to drink idolatry. I've drank in my fair share. I never, I never finished and been like, oh, I'm, I'm actually a better person now, right? Have you ever sinned and been like, now I'm totally satisfied? No, you've never done that. Have you ever worshipped an idol and been like, and I'm good now? He always demands more slavery. Jesus fills this woman so that not only is her heart filled, but it becomes a spring to fill the hearts of others. When she leaves her water jar, she finds living water, not only for her, but for others. And you see this play out, right? Her heart's full, and then she fills the hearts of all these Samaritans by bringing them face to face with Jesus too. And they end this, this narrative saying, um, at first we heard about him through you, but now we believe because we met him. I'm paraphrasing. But isn't that amazing? That when people see our full hearts, that they find our Savior as well. I would love for us 
to just take a minute and finish off um, our, our masterpiece and ask, you know, God wants to reveal himself in that fracture and thirst. That if we can be thoughtful enough to trace back our idolatry and sins into our hearts and say, man, I'm fractured here. I'm thirsting for this. That's when Jesus fills us. That's when Jesus appears to us. And as we move uh, this whole season into silence and solitude, take this piece of paper with you. Sit in front of your Savior, spirit to spirit, in truth. And know that he loves you. He's the great I am. And he wants to fill your heart so that you can fill the hearts of others. God, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your tenderness with the Samaritan woman. Because we need gentle hands for those places in our hearts that even we have a hard time handling. You are gentle, God. And as we hold those things in front of you, we remember that you already knew and loved us. And you died for those things. And you want to give us life and resurrection in them as well. I'd like to just invite us into two, three minutes of silence to sit before the Lord, not say anything, just to be soul to soul with him in truth, in like our nakedness and our authenticity and just say, God, I'm here. And for a lot of us, we'll kind of want to run. We'll want to fill that space with words. But I pray that we would let ourselves be known by God. And in the places where we might feel shame and guilt, that we would meet him at the communion table. That we would meet him at the table where his blood was spilt and his body was broken for us. That he can forgive us and we can find life in him. Will we just sit before the Lord in this moment? Father, I just thank you so much for dying on the cross for our sins. I think about the people in this room who feel far away. Would you just shower them with your love? And when they see your eyes, that they would see eyes of love that you want them home, that you are the, the father who welcomes our, your, his sons and daughters, no matter how long it's been. And I think about those of us who wouldn't consider ourselves Christian and trying to piece this message together. God, I pray for them. I thank you so much that you love them. 
you love each one of us and that you want to invite them into your family. And even today, if they want to say, man, I want this Jesus um, who loves and forgives me. I want this Jesus who wants to be that close to me and give me life. Um, yeah, I just pray that they would talk to you about it, that they would ask you to forgive them and that they would um, have you be their God, their, their Lord, their Savior. In Jesus' name.